Welcome to episode 43 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Before we start, I have to register a complaint. Last week, I made it clear that if you live in Nebraska, you were to listen to this podcast a day later than everyone else. And some of you did not follow the rules, did you? Now, I happen to know a few people in Nebraska, and some of them sent me messages about the episode on the day it was released, which... Look, do you want me to go to prison? Since Ben Sass left the Senate, Nebraska's been cracking down on podcasts something fierce. And with this accent, I don't think I would do especially well in a penitentiary. What are you in for? The murderers would ask me. Supplying podcasts, I'd say, and that would be it. I'd be shivved before I could say Matt Rule isn't a particularly good coach, all things considered. Guys, these regulations, they're here for your protection. We can't have some free-for-all arrangement under which people in Nebraska are free to listen to podcasts at the same time as the rest of the country. Just think what that would be like. It would be chaos. The Wild West. A Cornhusker catastrophe. I'm not angry. I'm not. I'm just disappointed. Your mother and I still love you very much, but next time, please think. And if you don't, I will have to tell Luther. Question. I know that you revere the US Constitution and its assertion that we are endowed with certain inalienable rights by our Creator, which governments exist to secure, rather than grant or create. But how does this square with your professed atheism, which I share? It seems to me that the concept of rights is dependent upon their emanating from an external objective authoritative source. In other words, something like the Judeo-Christian God. If I could assert a right to life on my own authority, someone who wishes to murder me could just as easily assert his right to kill me on their authority. If rights are conferred by majorities, those majorities could just as easily take them away. I have my own explanation, but I'm curious to hear how your concept of God-given rights, so central to our constitutional order, can coexist with an atheistic worldview. So this is a really good and fair question. But it's a question that I think only really applies philosophically. Or perhaps I should say it only really matters philosophically. I'll try to explain what I mean by that. As the questioner notes, the Declaration of Independence makes a series of assertions or metaphysical claims. It does not say that we ought to be equal or ought to have certain unalienable rights. It says that we do, and that that equality and those rights come from our creator, an external, objective, authoritative source. 
Likewise, it does not say that people who wish to dissolve political bans ought to be able to do so. It says that they are entitled to do so via the laws of nature and of nature's God, and that they are entitled to a separate and equal station by the same authority. These are indeed blunt claims of fact. They're not arguments advanced within a vacuum or an ideological system. So as someone who does not believe that there is a god or a creator, I don't share that conviction. That is to say, while I emphatically endorse the utility of those rights, I don't believe that those rights were ordained by a higher power. Now, to some people, this may make the claim that those rights exist in any meaningful sense weaker. But I don't think that necessarily follows. The question suggests that the lack of a god in the chain renders the right to life and the right to murder someone equivalent. But for a couple of reasons, I don't see how. First off, I believe that one can fairly easily reason oneself into acknowledging the right to life in a way that one cannot fairly easily reason oneself into the right to murder. The distinction between those two ideas does not seem arbitrary to me, in much the same way as I suspect it doesn't seem arbitrary to religious people or to people who think that it is ordained by God. And the same is true of all the rights within the Bill of Rights, which all make sense to me on their own terms. Now, I will, of course, grant that whatever arguments I might make in favour of the Bill of Rights or of, say, the right to life, however good those arguments might be, are not as dispositive as would be a clear declaration from God. But I don't think it follows from that that the non-religious arguments are therefore hollow. The Declaration also mentions the laws of nature, and as a conservative, I think that the natural laws to which the Declaration appeals can be inferred from both reason and experience without reference to the supernatural. Or to put it another way, I don't think that the lack of a deity as the author of those rights automatically weakens the case for those rights. I think it merely changes their provenance. I look at human history and I see an extraordinarily strong case for the rigorous protection of the rights that are listed in the Constitution, as well as the separation of powers that undergirds our system of government. I look at the way different societies have evolved. I look at the terrible bloodshed and tyrannies of the 20th century. I look at the French Revolution. I look at pre-glorious Revolution Britain. I look at the ancient world, which was a great inspiration to the founders. I look at modern nations such as China and Iran and North Korea. And I see a slam-dunk case for individual rights. Now, certainly the case for those rights will be disputed by other people in a way that they likely wouldn't be if, say, the sky opened and God announced that he endorsed them wholeheartedly. But the thing is, that hasn't happened, has it? 
And it didn't happen in 1776 or 1789 either. The Declaration of Independence, while wonderful, is not a holy document. And the claims it makes are not clearly laid out in the Bible or in any other holy text. Is freedom of speech an unalienable right in the eyes of God? That's an open question, isn't it? Which God? Which religion? Which interpretation of that religion? To what extent does God want the right protected? It's obviously not the case that all religious people in human history enjoyed religious liberty or freedom of speech or the right to assembly or the right to a trial. Not even close. So philosophically, there's still some work to do, even if you believe that these rights come from a creator. Yes, the founders claimed that the rights we cherish were ordained by God. But what happens when someone who sincerely believes in that same God disagrees with them? And that brings us to the practical problem. Again, if we lived in a world where everyone accepted there was a God, and everyone had the same conception of what that God thought, the rights from God case would be infallible as a philosophical matter. But we don't live in that world, and we never have. And even if we did live in that world, those rights still wouldn't be self-executing. Now, the questioner says, if rights are conferred by majorities, those majorities could just as easily take them away. That's true. But that's how it works now. And it's how it will always work if human beings have free will. I dislike this fact as much as any classical liberal, but it remains the case that if a supermajority of Americans wanted to, it could repeal the Bill of Rights completely. Worse, it could have me killed for no reason and without a trial. Now, I don't want to get into theodicy here, but if there is a God, and there may be, he didn't stop Hitler. People had to do that. It's no different in less drastic circumstances. Ultimately, whichever theory of rights one holds, those rights have to be sustained and protected by a majority or they will disappear. Now, don't get me wrong, this does not mean that the question of whether or not there is a God doesn't matter, and it certainly doesn't mean I'm right. The question matters a great deal, and I may well be wrong. But it does mean that after a point, it doesn't matter much practically whether the rights we want protected by law come from God or from tradition or from the indulgence of a transient majority, because their recognition and their scope is inevitably going to become a matter of public debate. Slavery coexisted with the Declaration and the Constitution for a long, long time. When they want to, people who purport to believe in the existence of unalienable rights are quite capable of defying the deity whom they believe contrived them. Which I suppose is all a long way of saying that I don't believe that God wants this right to exist is a trump card here, because even if that's true, which, again, it might be, it immediately runs into the same philosophical and practical objection as I do when I make my own case. Namely, says who? 
Ironically enough, one of the reasons that the First Amendment is so important is that it encourages epistemological humility. As a polity, we cannot know in a way that is universally satisfactory whether there is a God or not. There's 330 million people in America. As a result, the government is not allowed to proceed as if there unquestionably is. And if it's not allowed to do that, then there'll be a debate. And if there's a debate, then the people have the final say. And if the people have the final say, well, then we all have to keep fighting about it, don't we? My guest today is Heather MacDonald, the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal, and a New York Times best-selling author. Heather's most recent book is When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. Heather MacDonald, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. It's an honor to be on the Charles C. W. Cook podcast, if I got that right. You did. All right. So let us establish at the start here what you are and what you are not arguing in this book, and then maybe define some important terms. So early in the book, right at the start, you make it clear that the United States has a ugly history in the realm of race. And you write, and I'll quote this at length, America's treatment of blacks was heartbreakingly cruel and gratuitously sadistic for centuries. That mistreatment extended well past the Civil War and the formal elimination of de jure segregation, and it was found in the North as well as the South. White Americans' long-standing reflex to put blacks in their place undercuts every pie-end to the country's foundational commitment to freedom. Frederick Douglass's bitter comment on the antebellum 4th of July celebrations, your shouts of liberty and equality are to a slave a hollow mockery, needs to be ever juxtaposed to the narrative of American exceptionalism, end quote. What you're objecting to in this book is none of that. What you're objecting to in this book is the attempt to deal with that or to atone for that by engaging in bean counting and considering race instead of merit. So let me start by asking you, I suppose the question that everyone would want to ask you, having read your book, which is, given all of the current definitions and terms that are thrown around, what is or should count as racism and what isn't and shouldn't count as racism? Racism is the intentional discrimination against somebody on the basis of his skin color. An objective test that has no idea what the skin color is of the, of the people submitting their applications or their efforts is not racist. Colorblind standards are not racist. Colorblind standards exclude whites, they exclude Asians, and they exclude blacks. To say that just because a standard that has been set to try to achieve a certain level of competence or excellence in an institution, such as, let's say, a medical school, a standard for medical school admission or a standard for becoming a doctor 
that was not set on the basis of race, but was set on the basis of an assessment of what are the skills needed for that institution. If it turns out that that standard has a disparate impact on a particular group, that doesn't make that standard racist. But we're going around blaming standards for having disparate impact and tearing them down and saying we will opt for mediocrity instead of excellence in order to avoid disparate impact. And that is what I disagree with. Okay, so you write in the book, virtually all mainstream institutions now agree that a non-racially proportionate workforce, including their own, proves racism. That's the key idea you're disagreeing with. Absolutely. And that is the key gesture that the left makes that is now basically tearing down the traditions of Western civilization and the institutions of Western civilization. All the left needs to do is point to the racial demographics of any institution. It could be National Review. It could be the Manhattan Institute. It could be the New York Times. It could be a cancer research lab. And if there are not a proportional number of blacks there, which is for the national population, 13%, that becomes a per se proof of racism. The only allowable explanation today for racial disparities is racism. And what you're not allowed to say, and what I say in the book, is that the absence of racial proportionality is far more efficiently, simply, and persuasively explained by the vast academic skills gaps that have existed for decades now and have not shrunk. Given the existence of those academic skills gap, Charles, you can either have diversity or you can have meritocracy. You cannot have both. At present, they are mutually exclusive. And many of our institutions have decided that they would rather have diversity than have meritocracy. So I think there are a couple of questions here, and they're often conflated, but they should be treated discreetly. The first one is whether or not the existence of a non-racially proportionate workforce is in and of itself indicative of what is often described as systemic racism or, or disparate impact. And then the second one is whether or not it matters. So do you think it matters that the United States has a non-racially proportionate workforce in many industries, or for that matter, a non-sexually proportionate workforce? And if it does matter... What should we do about it, if anything? I don't think it matters at all for the functioning of those institutions at all. I do not care who is in that lab that is going to make the final breakthrough to understand cancer, to allow us to develop the most efficient remedies and drugs for it. I really don't care if it's an all-Black lab, an all-Asian lab, an all-Hispanic lab, an all-female lab. None of those traits are accomplishments, and they are not indicia of future performance. And the conceit that somehow you have better workforces that are better able to exchange ideas if they are racially proportionate, that's just made up out of whole cloth. None of the studies confirm that. I'm willing to imagine some kind of thought experiment where all else being equal, maybe, if you had an absolute standard of qualification, so everybody in that lab was equally scientifically qualified, 
to do cancer research, then maybe, maybe, but I really, I still just don't see it. You know, I don't see how being black helps you understand cell signaling in nematodes. I, I'm sorry, I do not. And I do not think being female gives me insight into cancer pathways through the body. But what we do know now is that to achieve that racially proportionate workforce, you are going to have to lower standards because the number of PhDs in above all the STEM fields each year is about 1% of all the PhDs in a STEM field. And we're not even looking at whether they're in the top of their class. So they're not out there. So no, I don't think it matters to the institutions. Does it matter to society? Yes, we now have a discourse that has taught us to regard racial disparities as proof of racism. And so as long as the academic skills gap remains, that is going to be a problem. Reading your book, I get the impression that you aren't convinced that the institutions that advance the theory of systemic racism actually believe it themselves. There's a couple of problems you seem to identify here. One is that many of those institutions call themselves racist, but also pose as the people who have the answer to racism. And the second is that it's not clear why they would be damaging themselves in the first place. So here's a couple of quotes. Has the Met in recent years failed to hire the most qualified musician because of his skin color or otherwise denied opportunities to minorities? I asked the spokesman. The Met had nothing further to add at this time, came the response. Here's another quote. Proponents of the racism narrative never explain why conductors, perfectionists by nature, would turn down the most qualified musician in favor of someone more likely to maul an exposed solo just because that inferior musician of white. Seems to me there that you're suggesting that the institutions that have jumped aboard this bandwagon don't believe it. Yeah, well, absolutely. And and you actually posited a thesis that I haven't, which is an even cleverer conundrum to pose to these institutions, which is that why should it be that institutions that happily and loudly proclaim themselves racist think that they are best place to solve racism? That's an interesting question that I've not thought of. My position is, how can Christopher Eisgruber, the president of Princeton University, or Peter Salovey, the outgoing president of Yale University, dare to say that they preside over racist institutions when they know that every faculty search is one desperate effort to find remotely qualified Blacks to hire, when they know that they are implementing massive racial preferences in the admissions system to admit Blacks. They are lowering their standards in order to have their quota of Black students, and yet they somehow still say that they're racist. I've always said, name some names. You know, if you really believe that, who are the faculty or the administrators that are discriminating against Blacks, and why are they still there? But your question about why do they think they can solve it is a very good one. I guess if they were asked that, maybe they'd say, well, I, Peter Salovey, am not racist. Although they say that, they would say, I'm racist too. We're all racist. So I don't know. I don't know. And then as far as the idea that these institutions that really just care about excellence 
would discriminate against the most qualified candidate just because he's black. It's preposterous. And again, I do not deny that that went on in the past. And that's what's the difficult thing here. It's not an implausible argument to say we'll never get beyond that and that we have not changed. I would just say, as an empirical matter, all I can say is it looks to me like we have changed 180 degrees. So here's another question I've heard often posed is why does it matter? You'll hear people defend affirmative action in this sense. By definition, if you are defending affirmative action, you are asking for special treatment. And in my view, you are condescending to the people that you're attempting to help. But the people who do that will, at least the honest ones, will own it. And then they'll say, yes, that's what I'm doing. But I think it is important to have representation, diversity, role models, or what you will. So who cares? I mean, I get asked that to me, it's an astounding question. And I realize I'm, I guess, in my own bubble, that to me, it's self-evident that if you're doing neurology research for Alzheimer's, you want the best possible researchers there, that these are real distinctions. It's nihilistic to think that we don't actually know how to measure scientific talent and that these tests are just all fake. If they were, colleges would discard them entirely and would just go to a lottery system. But in fact, they race norm to a fanatical degree. You know, they want to know, with few exceptions of the places like University of California that have banned even the submission of SATs, and that's a curious move they've made that I think has an interesting strategy behind it. But in any case, most schools want to know who is the very best Asian applicant within the Asian pool. And so they'll calculate the SAT scores out to the 10th decimal to the right of of zero, and the same with whites and the same with blacks. The idea that we don't want the best pilot flying our planes who has the least accident record on his simulator and is best able to make those decisions in a split second if the plane is going down, that, well, that doesn't really matter. I can't relate to that, but I would just say either you either feel it or you don't. I guess, you know, we should maybe have people just sign up in advance. If you don't think merit matters and you want race to be the predominant criterion for selecting your pilots or your doctors or your engineers or the people that are building your bridge, go to this world and we'll have the diversity world and everybody else that believes in merit, they can go to this world and they will be confident that they have been helped and their health is based on the best qualified people. All right, let's talk about art. A great deal of the book is about art. You seem heartbroken by what's happening in the art world. And you also seem frustrated by the way in which many institutions of art are trying to have it both ways. You write, for example, about an exhibition of sculptures by Carpeau, and you note that the establishment argue simultaneously that images of slavery are under-included in Western museums, but that when an exceptionally moving one is added or featured or highlighted, it's derided as a justification of slavery or it's described as pornography. And it it sort of makes me wonder whether the only way to win this game is, is not to play. Yeah. I mean, really, it's, it's just an absolute appalling fact that the leaders of our greatest art museums 
who have the privilege of presiding over collections that are magnificent in their portrayal of the human experience, their mastery of craft, their mastery of color, their mastery of psychological acuity through paint, for God's sakes. These people should be down on their knees, whether it's James Rondeau, the idiot who runs the Art Institute of Chicago. I quote him at length, and I, I hope that readers will go and read his the transcript of a speech he gave in Des Moines, Iowa. The guy sounds like a third grader who you know has just spent all of his time on smartphone. He cannot put a sentence together, and that there he is firing all the docents in the Art Institute of Chicago because they're white, or whether it's Max Holane, the head of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, who has also declared that the Met now is an anti-racist institution and is the one that mounted this outrageous show of a bust by Jean-Baptiste Carpeau of a enslaved Black woman that is a just absolutely riveting portrait of human dignity and resentment and rebellion against this arbitrary bondage. And the Met acquired this bust for the purpose of deconstructing Western art, for the purpose of deconstructing Carpeau, and claiming that when a white person portrays a Black or a Black who's been liberated from slavery, that the really the motivation between behind that white artist is to say that Black's natural condition is slavery. I am telescoping this, I am condensing the argument, and I know it's a little hard to take in if that's all you're hearing, because it sounds completely crazy. But that is the thesis of the show, that when whites create abolitionist art, trying to move the public to understand the barbarity of this institution, they're actually motivated by white supremacist instincts. It is that insane. And it is teaching young people who are already completely detached from our heritage, thanks to the failure of our education system, thanks to the failure of our elites to say that there is something important, life-affirming, essential to experience before you die in this tradition of Western art. You will be poor for it. You will have not understood the extent of human experience if you have not seen these works, if you have not listened to Mozart or Beethoven or Bach or Schubert or Chopin, you will have died a poor person. They don't make that argument. Instead, they are saying this is a racist tradition. So young people who have no exposure are given another excuse for their own ignorance to go around leading shallow lives without grappling with some of the greatest minds of human history. And I wonder to what extent you think that that sort of behavior actually makes us less tolerant, actually makes us less empathetic, actually narrows the arts in a way that would have been alien to people who were trying to engender human understanding. Well, that's the great accomplishment of, of one of the great accomplishments of British civilization, which is the 19th century realistic novel, which obviously is shared by Tolstoy and and other writers, but I would say its core is in the British tradition that arose, I presume, out of empiricism. I mean, it is a mystery to me, and it is one of the great fascinations of human civilization, of the ev evolution of style. How did we go from medieval allegory and romance to the realistic novel with its acute portrayal of 
interiority, of psychology, of specific individuals. And yes, reading those novels, you lose yourself. You enter a different world, many, many different ways of being. And now students are just given victimology narratives that just confirm them in their narrow view that their selves, their own petty, solipsistic, narrow selves are the most important thing in human life. And they should learn how to go around finding more excuses for grievance and self-pity. Whereas the literary tradition takes you into serfdom, into Russian serfdom, into British villages, into the oppression, yes, of different social classes that you have no idea about. And for me, I regret that my history education, my formal history education was far weaker than it should be thanks to the failure, abdication of their responsibility on the part of my professors in college to say, no, you must study history, and my own ignorance to realize this was essential. But I feel I can make up for it to a certain extent by a knowledge of art history, by being able to survey the evolution of artistic style, musical style, and literary style. And the more one reads in older literature, the more you know about the past, and the more you realize that your own point of view is very particular and should be questioned. Why does this only happen in the West? So you write, I'll quote at length, Under the logic of the current moment, any tradition that comes out of Europe is racist because its contributors will have been overwhelmingly white. It matters not that the demographics of Europe until the last 50 years made that racial composition inevitable. Balinese gamelan music, the Chinese opera, Indian classical music, and the Nigerian talking drum have been as racially monolithic without falling afoul of the diversity monitors. Only Western civilization is under attack for its traditional racial homogeneity. And you also note that exhibitions of non-Western art tend not to be criticized for failing to discuss the genocides or enslavements or sacrifices that were committed by the cultures from which those artists came. Why is the West uniquely susceptible to this? Well, Charlie, that is the question, and I do not purport to have an answer. I have hypotheses. I think it first needs to just be described, the situation in all of its detail. It is utterly bizarre. The West has capitulated to what is by now, I'm going to be very blunt, a race hustle. They are completely vulnerable to any charge of racism and are going about tearing down their past. And yes, it is uniquely here. The same people in those in the Metropolitan Museum that is disparaging putting these nasty subtext wall text on the great Baroque paintings from the great golden age of, of Dutch art, whether it's Rembrandt or Halls or Vermeer, are portraying African art, which was completely complicitous in efforts at tribal genocide unbelievable misogyny. They regard those as formal works to be admired for their formal construction and never engage in any kind of deconstructive teardowns. Why is this? I don't know. Every society has a history of colonialism and imperialism. Every society has had a history of slavery. 
the West was the one that developed consciousness that these things were wrong. I just listened on audio to the book on colonialism by the Oxford Don Bigger. And I have to admit, I didn't know the effort that Britain put in in the 19th century to interdict the slave trade. It spent most of its military naval resources on trying to end the slave trade. It took over Lagos because it couldn't get the native people to stop selling their fellow blacks into slavery to the Arabs. This was incredible. Britain gets no credit for this. It was the one that started the abolitionist movement and and people in America picked up on it. Josiah Wedgwood, you know, he wrote, he created these iconic cameos trying to say to white people, blacks have souls, they are human. And the Met says that Wedgwood is a racist. It is completely bizarre, Charlie. And if you have any suggestions as to why the West is uniquely tearing itself down for a history that is no worse than any other civilization and why those civilizations are not tearing themselves down. I would welcome hearing your explanation because it is the conundrum of our time. My theory on this is that we're the only part of the world that has held up this North Star of promises we, especially in America, base our culture around the Declaration of Independence. And I think that we are therefore more introspective and more likely to believe that we're falling short, which of course we did for a long time, as you point out. Maybe we can't get past that. What I don't know the answer to, or I don't have a hypothesis for, is why this has happened now. Because it seems to me that we didn't beat ourselves up enough when we needed to. <laughs> and we beat ourselves up far too much now that we really have made an enormous amount of progress. But I think the we in that sentence is important because you write that during the Chinese Revolution, the masses turned on the elites. Now in the US, the elites turn on everyone else, denouncing their fellow citizens as racists and the American past as monolithically shameful. How do those elites exercise their power? Are they elites? And are people going along with it out of fear? Or have they successfully changed the minds of the general public? Boy, those are tough questions. They don't deserve to be elite if they are not going to be honest about the qualities of the civilization that they are the inheritors of. They are furthering a phony narrative that is having extraordinarily catastrophic consequences. As far as why now, yeah, I mean, it's it's a tragic kind of like a double helix that when Blacks were trying to abide by bourgeois norms and qualify to enter, you know, mainstream society, you see it in the pictures of Ella Fitzgerald or Duke Ellington or Nat King Cole dressed to the, the nines, the young people that were doing the sit-ins at lunch counters, wearing suits and hats, just saying, please, we just want to be treated on an equal basis. And here we are, ready to be part of bourgeois society, law-abiding. We kept them out. And now that we have realized, yes, the hypocrisy of us going around proclaiming to the world that we were an exceptional nation, 
and that our commitment to equality set us apart. That was a contradiction. But now we have lived up to that. But you have an oppositional culture that took over Black culture starting in the 60s that works against the possibility of equal qualifications. And that it's that culture which has to change. So our awareness came belatedly and at a point when we're now as apart as we ever were in a sense. All right. My last question as we're running out of time is whether or not you think this is going to change. Are you optimistic this is going to change or do you think it's in here now in the long run? Well, the only grounds for optimism that I as a perennially pessimistic person have is to see what Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is doing to actually just say, sorry, we're not doing this anymore. You can't have racial preferences in admissions. You can't have loyalty oaths to the diversity regime, which is an oath to the destruction of free speech within your universities as tests for hiring or for promotion. You've got to get rid of your DEI bureaucracy. Now, the problem there, of course, is they're just going to rebrand the DEI bureaucrats. So they'll take out equity, diversity, and, and just put them maybe belonging will maybe pass the test. But he's actually saying we're not putting up with this any longer. And if that spreads, there may be some hope. But it's a demographic divide. And frankly, I'm going to say this, Charles, white people have to stop being susceptible to the race hustle. It's got to happen. And maybe if more people become aware that their white sons or their white grandsons are being totally screwed, and it's even more so for Asians, and they say, sorry, I'm not discriminating. I know that Harvard Medical School is not discriminating. I know that Harvard Law School is not discriminating. I know that UVA or the University of North Carolina are not discriminating. Therefore, you can't discriminate against me. That's what it's going to take. All right. Heather Modano, thank you for coming on the podcast. Great conversation, Charles. Thank you so much for having me on and for reading my book, actually, which is not <laughs> always a given with podcasts on my book. So I greatly appreciate that. Thank you so much. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to the questioner who asked me about rights and atheism. Thank you to Heather McDonald for coming on to talk about her book. Thank you to you for listening, unless you're one of those people who listened too early in the state of Nebraska. I'll see you next week. <laughs>